Hygienist in your dental chair, I sit without a single care, except when tickled by your hair. These words begin Ernest Houghton's incredibly fun poem titled Ode to a Dental Hygienist. By trade, Mr. Houghton was not a poet, but an anthropologist. Nevertheless, whether amateur or professional, any worthy poet will have three imperative resources at hand. A dictionary, a thesaurus, and an etymological dictionary, etymology being the study of the origins and histories of words. To give an example, suppose that I'm looking for a word to describe the ideas of healing, removal of pain, soothing, and the like. None of these, though, truly capture the nuance for which I'm struggling. So I use a thesaurus to look up the word allay, and just maybe it lists nepenthe as a synonym. Unfamiliar with this word, I look it up in the dictionary. A new age or otherwise inferior dictionary might define nepenthe as something like a sleeping potion, or possibly equate it to laudanum or another opiate. But an honest dictionary will tell you that it is a medicament mentioned in Homer's Odyssey, mentioned as a drug that remedies grief and causes the forgetting of sorrows. The diligent poet's next step is to consult an etymological dictionary. Nepenthe, it turns out, is derived from the Greek word penthos, meaning sorrow, suffering, or grief, and the prefix ne, which is a negative modifier. Combining these, we ascertain that nepenthe is not a mere sleeping potion or opiate, but a substance that removes grief and sorrow. Therefore, to take nepenthe is more than using alcohol or laudanum to overcome sadness. It is taking a mythical elixir to remedy unbearable, intractable grief, to cure suffering. Edgar Allan Poe used the idea of Nepenthe poignantly in his poem The Raven when he penned, Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite and Nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, O quaff this kind Nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Poe's description of this lugubrious scene is brilliant. He says, quaff, O quaff this kind Nepenthe, because to quaff is to hastily drink an overwhelming amount. After being in the desert without water, the traveler does not drink water, the traveler quaffs water, a gallon or more, all at once if possible. To quaff is to pour the bucket into your mouth like you'll die if you don't. Whoever quaffs something nearly drowns himself trying to take it in, because that is the urgency with which it must be consumed. So Poe's tormented lover is not looking for a sleeping pill. He's looking for an impossible cure that will relieve his abject suffering. But not stopping there, he needs it now, right the second, as much as can be found. Quaff, oh quaff this kind Nepenthe, cries the wretched soul, and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore.
Good morrow, everybody, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry. My name is Ben Laboot, and today we're talking about suffering. But I promise that it won't get you too down, and that we'll end on a high note. In The Worth of Wisdom, which was Season 2, Episode 6, we considered Solomon's read in the Book of Proverbs, and we concluded that the Proverbs focus on only a facet of the complex realities that surround the intersection of God, our actions, and life's outcomes. We wrestled with the question of who gets the bread, and consulted the wisdom books of Ecclesiastes and Job to help us answer it. The book of Job is, perhaps, one of the oldest stories in the Bible, and many scholars wonder if it predates Judaism itself. Supposing that's true, we can wonder why such an ancient story has been preserved until our era, and if it has any relevance still. Personally, I believe that it is unexpectedly pertinent for the same reason that it has preserved it all these millennia, because it is centered upon a universal and inescapable human experience. Suffering. For as long as there have been or will be human beings, there is suffering. And as long as there has been or will be suffering, there is the question, why? Let's look then briefly at the story of Job, which begins, There was a man named Job living in the land of Uz, and he was blameless and upright and held God in awe. In addition to his probity, Job was also wealthy and, at least as far as earthly luxuries are concerned, very blessed by God. Meanwhile, we, the readers, are transported into the heavenly realm, where we eavesdrop on a conversation between God and another being. Their topic is the quality of Job. Little is known about the second converser, for he, she, or it is not given a backstory, only a title the Satan. The position known as the Satan is similar to an accuser or prosecutor. Its purpose is to test the quality of a person's faith, establish that person's loyalties before God, and present challenges to prove the same and encourage personal growth. It is not very clear if the Satan is working with or against God, but when God asks about Job, Job is accused. The Satan appeared before God, and God asked, Where have you been? Across the entirety of the world, replied the Satan. Then you've seen Job, God questioned. And have you considered him? He appears blameless and upright before me, holding me in awe and turning away from evil. That's true, conceded the Satan, but perhaps that is only because of all the blessings you've given him. Do you know if he will still love you without those blessings? What if you were to take them away? His home, his wealth, his livelihood, his family? Is there not a chance that he will come to curse you? Very well then, replied God. I give you authority over all these things so that we can get to the bottom of this question and determine Job's mettle. Only, be careful not to harm his body, but all else is yours. If this exchange is unexpected, then feel free to find it in your own Bible. But note 
how this dialogue understandably confounds clergy, scholars, and laity alike when it is read as an evil Satan accusing God and Job, and God having to prove something to the Satan at Job's expense. However, if we read it as a collaborative effort between partners endeavoring to answer a mutual question, that the interaction makes perfect sense, and the forthcoming trials faced by Job become the next logical step. As God and the Satan had decided, Job then lost everything, even his family. But even after horrible vicissitude, Job remained steadfast and praised God, saying, Naked is how I came into this world, and naked is how I shall leave from it. The Lord has given to me, and now the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of God. Considering Job's response, God and the Satan conclude, Good on Job, but we need to be certain. So God instructed the Satan to deprive Job of the only thing he had left, his health. Thus, Job was afflicted with infirmity so that those in heaven might watch and await his response. Following his peripatia, Job was fortunate enough to have a few friends who, like any thoughtful companion seeing their mate's misadventure, tried to comfort him. Most of the book of Job consists of his friends' attempts to comfort their hapless buddy. They try to rationalize Job's situation and say things like, Job, we all know that God doesn't act capriciously or randomly. Surely, then, these evils have befallen you because of some sin you've committed, even if unknowingly. Are you sure you haven't murdered anyone? Haven't stolen anything? Because, of course, God wouldn't have done this for no reason. To every inquiry about possible sin, Job replied, No, I haven't done that. His friends exhausted their guesses and eventually began to run out of ideas. And all that while, as they pondered, God remained silent. That is, until chapter 38, where the Bible says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, and I will question you, and you will make it known to me. For the next four chapters, God berated Job with rhetorical questions like, Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook, or press down his tongue with a cord? Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb and said to it, Thus far you have come and no farther? Thus God chided Job. But it wasn't lambaste for the sake of lambaste, for God was trying to stress to Job an idea that we mention frequently here on Stories of Symmetry, that we don't see things from God's perspective as God spoke through the prophet Isaiah. For as the heavens are higher than earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In a way, it's about sample size, because God sees infinitely, but we see with narrow eyes. Therefore, how on earth can we assume that we know better than God? 
I draw my conclusions from finite experiences and limited understanding. But only God knows what will be best for me and best for his kingdom. Returning now to the story of Job, God's harsh vituperations are a reality check that ask Job, Who are you to say what I should or should not do? How I should or should not act? Your counsel is words without knowledge, because neither you nor your friends know the things I know or bear the responsibilities I bear. At the end of the Lord's homily, Job bowed his head and humbly replied, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Two audiences benefit from the story of Job and its questions about suffering. First, we the readers are an audience. But secondly, there are the characters in the story itself. We, on the outside, are privileged to overhear the God-Satan dialogue which, albeit raises questions of its own, nevertheless resolves the mystery about why Job suffers, and we learn that it's not due to any fault or sins of his. But for the other audience, Job and his friends, they are provided no such answer. I, God spoke to Job, but only to press upon him the inappropriateness and futility of his attempts to figure God out, as he and his friends were doing. Nowhere in that address did God explain the cause of Job's suffering. God never said, Oh, by the way, the misfortune and evils you experience are not because of something you did. In fact, the angels and I agree that you are the most righteous person on earth. No, God never said that. God never answered the question of why. This is what's known as dramatic irony, where we the audience know something that the characters do not. In the story, the reader gets something different from the characters therein. The reader walks away with an entirely different perspective than miserable Job and his friends. For them, there was no explanation for Job's suffering. All throughout, and through the very end, they could not, despite their best collective effort, explain the circumstances surrounding Job. What they did get, however, which many of us never receive, was a direct address from God. But as we've noted, even when God came and confronted Job, God did not explain the reason for the suffering. God disabused Job of his perspective and corrected his mentality, and instilled Job with the fear of the Lord. But why did God not additionally gift Job with the peace of mind and explain the reason for his misfortune? God, of course, could have, but must have chosen not to. Perhaps God does not wish to explain suffering, or maybe the explanation will taint the experience if any positive takeaway is to be gleaned from it. But, whatever the reason, God chooses not to explain suffering. The reader has a different perspective than the characters. For the reader's vantage point peers into heaven 
while God and the Satan were discussing Job and resolved that he be tested. Therefore, we can extrapolate that perhaps suffering is not always the fault of the one who suffers. We can gather that, at least in Job's case, suffering was a form of trial to test the validity and worth of Job's faithfulness to God. But still, even the reader has no definitive answer or explanation for suffering. Finally, whether audience or actor, we and the characters alike are told that we don't know what God knows, nor do we see what God sees. Therefore, it is vanity, sheer imbecility, and just maybe some degree of heresy to think that we know better than God and that the Holy One ought to more vigorously consider our opinions about the universe and its intendants. No, rather, God's ways are above our ways, and we should be thankful for that, because if it were otherwise, then our God would not be a deity worth our time. But since our God is a worthy God, we can be thankful and trusting, even when it's difficult. The Bible tells us that Jesus, God incarnate, entered willingly into his passion, whose tortures culminated in death by crucifixion. There are many artistic representations of grisly crucifixion, one of the most common being the Catholic crucifix. I think that most people, seeing a crucifix or oil painting of the same, are politely aghast, remark about the awfulness, but don't think of crucifixion as too much worse than any other painful death. But think about the word excruciating, which from the words ex and crux, crucis, translates to from the cross, because the Romans had no other word for the above and beyond suffering endured by victims of the cross, so it became excruciating from the cross. For the early Christians, it was too disturbing and unpleasant to envision their Savior's torture. Hence, representations of Christ's crucifixion did not appear until several centuries after the event. Only from that distance could they begin to depict the image. But by that time, crucifixion was so far removed from the collective memory that people had forgotten how it worked. That's why representations of Jesus on the cross, even to this day, defy physics, and place the nails in physiologically untenable locations like the middle of the palms. The realities of crucifixion come to us not through church tradition, but through archaeology and study of the classics. All of this is to impress upon us the mystery of why God as Jesus chose and willingly endured such a harrowing death as death by a cross that even his own followers could scarcely endure eidetic memories of it. So we ask, why did Jesus endure it? A cursory overview of Christian theology tells us that Jesus' death was necessary for the salvation of mankind and mending the fractured relationship that had existed between God and people. Defense of that argument is for another time. 
but if you can oblige me by pressing the I believe button, then the question stands, why that death? If a death was needed, if any form of dying would have been acceptable, then why choose one as terrible as crucifixion? The exceedingly ancient book of Job is still around because suffering is universal. Since the fall, it has always been, and until Perusia, it likely always will be. But God is a sovereign God, no? So when we suffer, we naturally blame God because a sovereign one, we believe, has control over that suffering. If we are informed by the book of Job, then we believe that's indeed the case. But still, what about the why? From all angles, it seems like suffering is an inherent feature of life, like breathing and hoping. But are we doomed to know nothing about its purpose? Yet, even in silence, God is steadfast and comforts us by saying, You must suffer, because I will not have it otherwise, and I don't have to explain myself to you. Instead, I will do something even greater. I will show you my solidarity and suffer with you. And God's suffering with us is not in a distant, empathetic, hug-us-as-we-cry manner, but actually enduring it as we endure it, being tormented as we are tormented, saying, I won't take it away right now, but I will join you in it. So when you suffer and are tempted to think of God as unfair, consider how Jesus endured the cross by his own choosing to show that he will endure it with you. And let there be no doubt whether God understands or knows what it's like. For the death experienced by Jesus was excruciating. And for our own benefit, that we might be convinced that God does understand. After which, we can neither accuse nor raise our fist to heaven shouting, You don't know what it's like. Because we know that God knows just how bad it is. Even though God will not take it away, God understands. The book of Job is fascinating, because he was never told why he had to undergo the process, the suffering. Can we, though, from our vantage point of the story, with our knowledge about God, by consulting the words of Jesus through several millennia of philosophy, can we discern why God chooses our suffering? Before we ask this question, we first need to remember that because God endured it on the cross for our sake, we are assured that against whatever good it yields, God has weighed the agony he knows firsthand. Secondly, we acknowledge that understanding the why will do little for most of us when we are called upon to endure the process. Knowing why is not worthless, but it's just not the same as Nepenthe. These in mind, I can't be certain about a definitive answer to the question about why we suffer, but I think that we can make good progress into beginning to answer that question. Jesus, on the night before he was to suffer, gathered his disciples to him and said, I am, I am, the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it might bear more fruit. According to Jesus, 
every living person is a branch. And whether you bear fruit or not, God will cut the branch that is you. If you do not bear fruit, then the cut is negative. Its purpose, to eject you from the vine. If you do bear fruit, then the cut is positive. Its purpose, to help you grow and become even more fruitful. But either way you slice it, there is cutting. And make no mistake, cutting the branch is, for the branch, an unpleasant process. I wonder if the branch might describe it as excruciating. Jesus told this parable to his disciples so that, with any luck, they might remember his words when they were in the midst of it. Because pruning is difficult. Pruning is unpleasant. And pruning looks absurd to the untrained eye. For why would a good vine dresser take fruit-bearing branches and cut them way back until they look like dead limbs? But good gardeners know, as we know, that once the vine heals, its branches will be stronger and even more productive than before. And what then? More pruning. And the vine returns stronger yet again. Rinse and repeat. The cycle continues. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that if they were in a season of pruning, its unpleasantness, the suffering, was neither random nor causeless, but God-ordained and growth-inspiring. Furthermore, the pruning itself is not punishment for wrongdoing, but reward, yes, reward, for fruitful laboring. This is basically the same inference we draw from the book of Job. Job was the righteous servant of God, and because of his great faith, God bid the Satan torment him. Test the worth of his faith. See if it holds water. And while unpleasant, this was good for Job, if for no other reason than knowing whether or not his faith was sincere. Think about it. Do you ever wonder if your faith is strong enough? If your faith can stand the test? How will you know unless you test it? If you have a sailboat that floats, then that's something. But how will you know the quality of that vessel, whether or not it's worth trusting on the open water, until you put it through a storm? And if it weathers a light rain, then next time take it out in a tempest. And if it survives the tempest, then maybe it's worth riding through a hurricane. As unpleasant as it is, the trials are necessary, even to the point that maybe suffering itself is necessary. And perhaps that's the reason that God lets it persist. Maybe it is so integral to our development that God chooses to take up the suffering with us rather than remit it. Such is the meaning of compassion. For as we began today with etymology, let us conclude with the same. Compassion comes from the Latin words cum, meaning with, and patio, passus, meaning to suffer. Therefore, compassion means to suffer with. Daniel, from the Old Testament, had three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when those three refused to bow to a statue of the Babylonian king, they were cast into a furnace. Yet the king marveled, because three had been thrown in, but four were seen standing in the flames. 
the newcomer appeared like one of the heavenly hosts. When the unbowed three were released, they had not been touched by the fire. But the point is that before that happened, God joined them in the inferno. God did not let them endure alone, but stepped into the fire with them. Our compassionate God. Our God suffers with us. Maybe we are being tested, or maybe not. But either way, God joins us. Because it is excruciatingly necessary. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry. My name is Ben Laboot, and if you enjoy this podcast, then please share it with the people in your life, and consider subscribing and leaving a positive review. Remember that blogs, episodes, and more are on our website, storiesofsymmetry.com, and on Facebook and Instagram, at Stories of Symmetry. The next episode will be out in two weeks, and until then, go with God, go in peace.